Hello, welcome to episode 137 of the Juicebox Podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Omnipod and Dexcom. Please go to myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox or dexcom.com forward slash juicebox to find out more. In this episode, Jessica Lloyd is an adult with type 1 diabetes. She was diagnosed while in medical school at the age of 27. So it's a, a pretty interesting mix of a physician and a person with diabetes talking about diabetes. Great perspective from two different ends of the conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. Here we go. Please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before being bold with insulin. And speaking of being bold with insulin, thank you to everyone who's already placed orders for the Bold with Insulin t-shirts and other swag. If you're interested, go to ardensday.com forward slash store or the links in your show notes. Those of you who have already received your shirts or are about to receive them, if you get a chance, take a picture of yourself, put them on social media, hashtag them bold with insulin and juice box podcast. I'd love to see them on you. All right, here comes Jessica. I'm almost a little happy that your that your camera popped up there for a second because you're really young, or you. Look- I am. Yeah, I'm 32. Wow, because your um, resume reads like you're like 50. <laughs> That's like the nature of medical training, you know. It's a long road to hope. You can stick a lot of things one after the other on your CV. <laughs> yeah, it's really something. Like I, I got it, and I was like, wow, that's uh, there's a lot of impressive words on there. <laughs> What, you know, they, they train us that in medical school, how to make, um, you know, even just going to the bathroom sound fancy. My, my wife uh, works in a pharma company and uh, at her last job many years ago, she had a title that I pointed out to her once had two made up words in it. Ha, and, that's yeah, incredible. And I was just like, I'm like, those are pharma words. Those aren't real words, you know? And she's like, no, everyone said, uh, says pharmacovigilance. I'm like, it's not a real word. I don't, <laughs> I don't care what you say. <laughs> so, uh. Yeah, it just had the same feeling. So it was really cool to get your note, um, and especially sort of the way you, the way you spoke about, the way you spoke about the the podcast was interesting to hear it from another person's perspective because I guess it is sort of that way in life, right? You know, it's, I don't want to call the podcast art because I don't believe that it's art, but I think that when you kind of create something from nothing, that you have this image of what it is in your mind, but it ends up being something different to the people who consume it sometimes, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you said that, that it almost felt, I don't know, like it just, it was just really interesting. We'll talk about it. So go ahead and introduce yourself and then I'll, I'll say more about that. Sure. That sounds good. Well, my name is Jessica Lloyd. I am a urologist, actually a fellow in reconstructive urology. And I was diagnosed five years ago with type one diabetes and kind of reached out to you, Scott, just given my experience with diabetes and then also being kind of behind the curtain as a medical person. Jessica, when you talk, something's happening. Um, it sounds like there's a tiger growling behind you when you speak, but not. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, the cat is purring. Let me get rid of him. Is that really what it is? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. <laughs> Let me go. I'm going to go to a different room where they can't pester me. That's so funny. I didn't realize that this, the mic was that powerful. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's talking. And I'm like, I can't decide how I feel about the microphone. But, but I was like, I guess we have to get rid of that weird sound. <laughs> yeah, here. I'm now, I'm Son's cat. Do you hear anything now? <laughs> no, I couldn't hear it. <laughs> Perfect. 
I can't believe that what I thought that was happening was actually happening. I mean, with- <laughs> I was like, oh, this little cat is so cute. I'm sure he will. I'm sure Scott can't hear him. <laughs> You're like, hi, my name's Jessica. I'm like, oh. It's like, I wonder if someone's like pouring concrete next to her house or one time. It's it's funny how these mics work. Um, they're they're so advanced that when you're speaking, they're grabbing sound, and when you don't speak, they sort of know not to work as hard. Gotcha. So my name's Jessica Lloyd. I am a fellow in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery, and I am also a type one diabetic, diagnosed five years ago when I was in residency, and I'm just eager to share my thoughts. Well, so first of all, that's a that's an impressive. A little resume there. Um, what is female reconstructive surgery? Sure, that that's a really good question. It's a subspecialty within urology. Actually, you can get to it through GYN, OBGYN residency as well. But it's um, additional training after uh, residency for people that want to help women that have trouble with incontinence, prolapse, voiding dysfunction, and kind of different features of the female genital urinary tract that can be corrected surgically. No kidding. So you were just like, hey, I'm a doctor now, but I want to be a more specific, like, how does that, is that, a, is that, is that a, especially that the sort of calls to you during your training? It's, I mean, it's, I don't imagine that's something you like launched out of your four year degree and you're like, you know what I'm going to do? Or maybe it was. No. no, you're very right. I think a lot of people go into medicine with ideas about I'm going to do X, Y, Z. I actually went to medical school thinking I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon um, and, and was totally wrong. No interest in that. And when I started my urology residency, not sure I really had a great sense of what I wanted to do. I kind of liked everything. Mm-hmm. There was a while when I was kind of high on the idea of peds urology, but as you get a little bit more experience, you start realizing what you like, what you don't like. And for me, female urology is just a great fit. Well, that's really cool. It's just interesting how it, I guess it shows itself as you're, as you're going down that path and trying to figure things out. Mm-hmm. Um, but you said, how old are you now? Do you mind saying? Oh no, I'm 32. 32. And how old were you when you were diagnosed with type one? I was 27. So you were in school. I was a, a resident. I was in my third, the beginning of my third year of residency and residency six years. Wow. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I'm, I'm remembering back to the first time I got a car loan and I was like four years. No. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and you're like, I, you know, I was in residency for six years. You know, I'm assuming you have an undergrad degree. So what do you have in total? Brag a little oh, bit. How much, oh. how much education in years? Well, I think I started kindergarten when I was four because I have a late birthday. So if you say 32, take away four, what's that, 28 years? If you include all the, you know, addition to the introductory stuff. Jessica, major, long time. major props for going back to kindergarten when I asked you how long you've been there. <laughs> well, you know, you might as well get credit for everything you do. <laughs> I guess so. I never even considered that. But I am, uh, I'm going to start talking to people like that too. I'm going to say in my, uh, my 12 plus years of education. Uh, yeah. But. <laughs> But I guess if you skip out on the sort of high school stuff, it's four years of college, four years of medical school, and then six years of residency. And my fellowship is two years, which that's certainly just a special brand of torture that I elected for myself. You know, that's optional. Will you, um, will you make money in your 60s? Is that what is that your <laughs> That's my goal. You know, I'm fortunate. I'm married to someone that has a real job and has really pulled his weight supporting my family financially for a long time. Way to go. But, uh, my joke with him is that, gosh, you know, finally, when I get a real job and start being able to pay back my loans and contribute in a meaningful way, you know, you can just take early retirement. <laughs> I wandered around. So I've been a stay-at-home dad for 17 years. Um, and and I, uh, the first time I, you know, I got an ad on the podcast, I, it was, it really struck me. I was like, well, I haven't made any sort of money 
really ever (laughs) going back to when I, when I, you know, when we were like, Hey, one of us should quit our jobs and stay home with this baby. And, uh, you know, we did the, um, we did the loose math and my wife had a, my wife had a a, a reasonable trajectory. We were young, uh, in our early twenties. And I, you know, I always say that if, if my wife would have quit her job and and I would have uh, elected to take care of the family that we'd live probably in a swamp somewhere, you, you know, on the in, the, in the panhandle somewhere, just, you know, in a, in a trailer trying to, <laughs> try, trying to avoid gators with the amount of money I could possibly bring in. And my wife just had such a better track that we, you know, we kind of stuck with her. But mm-hmm. um, way, way back then, I was doing graphic design for this like little credit union. And uh, I did a couple more jobs after I quit my job to make money to buy my wife an engagement ring because we'd been married mm-hmm. we'd been married for five years almost without an engagement ring, and um, at that point, and so I did that, and then I just hadn't worked after that, and now like I do speaking, I I'll, you know I'll go speak places and everything, and then those checks are really nice, but it's once in a while, and it's you know it's not a, an overwhelming amount of money. Um, but so the podcast came and it was the first time I got like a check in a while. So I was like, I, uh-huh. hung, I hung it on the refrigerator. Like it was an art, pro- huh. like it was an art project, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. you know? And then, uh, and then one time I was like, Hey, we bought something. I was like, I'm going to consider that I paid for that. And she, she's like, if it makes you happy. And I was like, yeah, it does a little bit. Actually, it's a weird thing to, um, I don't know to, to, I, I always say to people like, it's odd to have your wife's birthday roll around. And you go buy her a gift and then recognize it's her money you've bought her a gift with. And then later you give her the sure. gift and she doesn't like it. And you're like, wow, I took her money and bought her something she didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm sure you're being compensated slightly for your job as a physician. I'm just saying with all the loans for the skillions of years of, of education that you have, I'm assuming you're, uh, you'll be paying those back for a while. But um, yeah. but anyway, so you have – I mean that that's a really cool like specific – you know, you know, uh, track of, of medicine that you're involved in. And so you do search, so you, you perform surgery on people. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. The nice thing about urology is it's a nice mix of kind of medical management and surgical approaches to disease. So, you know, within the field of urology, you can do huge cancer operations, huge reconstructive operations, more sort of outpatient surgery, stone surgeries, which are often pretty simple. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we do it, like I said, a, a variety of medical management in the clinic as well. So it's a nice gamut for people that, want to be specialists, but still want to have their hand kind of in both the medical and the surgical sides. You're also helping people in a, with a specific issue that, you know, I'm assuming it's not, it's not completely easy to find great care in some of those specific specialties like that too. You know, so it's cool that you gave your time and your, and your whole focus to, I think that's amazing. It's cool, but it's also like a total treat for me. Like, I think the reason that I'm willing to be in training for a zillion years and, you know, put my family through like the financial hardship of carrying my weight is like, it's great. Medicine's a great job. And it's probably, you know, a little bit easier to say that as a fellow, because one thing that I'm protected from is a lot of the billing side of things. I, I have to do very little on that side. But like, forming relationships with patients, seeing patients in clinic, have people come in and say, gosh, you know, I, I didn't think that there was a, a way to fix my problem, but I'm hearing for you, maybe there is. Like, that's cool. It's great. I would pay someone for the opportunity to do that. So the fact that I get paid to do it is like, wow, what a fortunate world I found myself in. So you have that really cool, you have that feeling that, 
you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to like match up what you're doing, and what I'm doing, but sometimes I'll get an email from somebody and they're like, Hey, you know, I'm having a much easier time with my blood sugar than I used to because of the podcast. I'm like, Oh wow. I helped somebody today. Like that, no, that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's a great feeling. Yeah. It's hard to replace too. It's not a, it doesn't really compare much with other things that I've experienced so far. Um, okay. So you're diagnosed while you're in school and, and married, I'm assuming too, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you have any kids? No kids. I was going to say, I don't know how you would possibly make a baby while you were doing all that. But but just in case you guys were just like crazy multitaskers, I thought I would ask. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so, um, so so when you're diagnosed and you're you're in school, how does it kind of present to you? Oh, gosh, Scott. It was a bad scene. Um, I was in my third year residency, and our third year where I trained was a research year. So you have 12 months off of clinical duties, more or less, to conduct scientific research. And, you know, medical people are kind of overachievers. And one thing that they tell us in medical school and then in in training is get your disability insurance when you're young. You'll be insurable. It'll be relatively cheap. You can keep it for years and years. And then, you know, God forbid something happens to you. You've got some some options and financial stability. So, okay, it's my research year. I have like this nine to five schedule. I'm going to make an appointment with the disability insurance people and go ahead and get that done. So I met with the guys. And one thing they do is, you know, whole battery of blood tests and someone comes and checks your blood pressure and your heart rate, blah, blah, blah. So I send off all my blood and I get a call back a week later. Hey, do you have diabetes? Your A1C is 6.3. And I was like, it was like the floor dropped out from under you, you know, like I was not expecting that at all. So I didn't have a primary care doctor. I was 27 years old, healthy, ran marathons, like never really thought twice about anything wasn't having really any symptoms, although when I think back now, maybe I was having a little bit of weight loss, but nothing really to speak of. Um, and so I like frantically call, get like a primary care doctor, go in. And she says, well, you know, she's just a generalist. She kind of says, well, you know, you look pretty good, but you, you told me you could maybe clean up your diet a little bit. So why don't we just try that and come back in three months and get another A1C? So, you know, I wasn't like eating terribly to start as vegetarian, but I wasn't eating terribly. Uh, but I tried to be like a little bit more vigilant. And I don't really even know at this point what that meant to me then. But I tried to be a little more vigilant, went back three months later, and my A1C was 6.9. <clears throat> at that point, I said, Oh, I need to see an endocrinologist. So I tried to be good and just do it kind of the standard way that a normal patient would do it. And I called the appointment line where I was a resident. And it's a big tertiary care hospital, you know, not a little podunk place. And they said, oh, we can get you in to see somebody in like, it was like two or three months. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, my world is crashing down like right now, you right, know, right. Um, I, I need to see someone now. And so that actually was kind of the first time when I saw what I had options for kind of as a doctor in the system versus as a patient, because I called up a buddy who I knew worked with an endocrinologist who was actually the person I wanted to see and said, hey, this is the situation I'm in. Like, can you help me out? And he routed my email to her, to her, the endocrinologist I want to see. She said, hey, I've got time in my clinic tomorrow. Can you come? And I was like, yes. But, you know, just just the fact that that option was available to me because I had this entree into the system versus what, you know, general public has to deal with made me say, gosh, you know, this feels unfair. But I still took it. Oh, please. <laughs> I yeah. <gotta> think. <laughs> yeah. This is wrong. And right after I get myself together, I'm going to fix this for other people. And <laughs> no, I would have listened. Everyone would have done the same thing. Right. Right. But that not that insane that, that 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 gap of time? Well, first of all, what you hear is that because you're an adult, 
even though it looks like you have type one to the doctor, like, well, let's wait because you probably don't. So it's even, Mm -hmm. even with physicians who shouldn't be thinking that way. I've interviewed people 59 years old diagnosed with type one diabetes. So, you you know, like even for physicians who probably shouldn't be thinking that way, it's still sort of the norm, you know, like, like, well, you're probably too old for it. Um, So it might be, it's something else. I'm just trying to imagine when you're vegan and you don't feel like you're eating very well, does that just mean cookies? What does that mean exactly? <laughs> so I'm trying, again, you know, it's so funny. Like, so actually my diet has really changed since then. I wasn't vegan. I was vegetarian. But like, you know, I would eat for breakfast probably like a Cliff Bar. And then for lunch, I, the one thing that I really remember is I would make this coconut rice stuff. And it was kind of like a, a curry rice with egg and like some peas and green beans. And then for dinner, I'd have like a big salad. My husband hated those salads. So right, right. when we really, when I got diagnosed and we really changed the way we ate, I think he was like the happiest guy. <laughs> but um, I think the big change I made is I, I you know, like many people, I kind of like desserts, especially then. I really had a sweet tooth. And so I would oftentimes have like not one, but two desserts after dinner. Oh. You know, why not? 27, you still got a metabolism running all these races. And so I think I cut back from two desserts to one dessert was like the big change that I made. Yeah, I like the way you think. That's excellent. (laughs) (laughs) I've really cut back. I'm just having one of these cookies now Um, or or whatever it is. So, wow. Okay. So that's kind of crazy. Now, now, so you're in there and I'm assuming because I have to admit like my, my, one of my best friends in the whole world is my, is my children's pediatrician. And so there is something to being able to like text a picture to somebody and being like, Hey, do I have to go see a doctor for this real quick? Could you tell me? And, yeah. uh, and there, it's great. So you're in there and, and not that you know this doctor that you got the appointment with, but now there's a professional courtesy going on. They, they recognize what's, you know, that you're a physician and they are too. And you're going to get sort of like what you would assume is, I don't want to say better, but I guess better care. Like she's, she, you know, they're going to pay closer attention to you. What was your feeling for what your life was about to become as you left that appointment? Oh, Scott, it was like really devastating at the time. Because I'll tell you, especially on the surgical side of things, we don't see people with diabetes who are flourishing in the wild. We see people who are sick for potentially a number of other reasons who are in the hospital with like bad problems. Um, And I can tell you, as as a urology resident, we do a year of general surgery training to start our training. And you're involved with the vascular surgery service and they do amputations for, you know, diabetic foot ulcers. And I've been in on those surgeries and they are honestly, they, I perceive them as pretty gruesome. I've seen people come in with gangrene and, you know, like toes that are falling off. I've seen people waiting for their kidney transplants because of poorly controlled diabetes. I remember a woman who was, who lost her vision at 31. I, I remember her face to this day. That was actually in medical school. But you have all these visions. And granted, many of those patients, they weren't like me. They, they weren't type 1. But even so, some were. Um, and that's kind of the vision that I have. And I literally, the, I think one of the first thoughts that went through my mind is, I'm not going to be able to practice medicine anymore. Like, how will I get hired by a consulting firm to do medical consulting? I actually, I think I went to the McKinsey website like that night. And looked at like how you sign on as like a you know early career professional to do consulting. Well, you know why that's so interesting because I have a, a few friends who are police officers, like life ta- lifelong police officers, and something I've noticed about each and every one of them is, you know, at, after a decade or so of being a police officer, there's sort of just this knee jerk reaction in their mind that everybody they meet for the first time is up to no good. 
Mm-hmm. And you don't recognize till later when you really step back and look at their lives that when they go to work every day, most of the people they speak to are lying to them, trying to get out of something or breaking a law. And so that they that that sort of becomes their norm for what the world is. And I guess when you're a physician, that could be the same thing, right? Like there's there could be a million people in the world with diabetes. Obviously, there's many more. But if you could have a million people, 900,000 of them could be living really well and healthy with it. But the 100,000 that aren't, you see. You're and, exactly and, right. Right. And then, so that's your expectation for it. That's really something. So you must have been, you see, that seems unfair to you actually, because when I come in when my, with my daughter and I know nothing about type one and some doctor says, Hey, you know, even though they're not very good at it, they say horrible things like your life's about to change forever and you can't stay alive without this insulin. You're like, wow, there's probably a nicer way to say that. And, and, you know, and then all that stuff, but I still have like the hope of the medical community and the hope of tomorrow and that I have never once seen an ulcer ridden foot in surgery. And yeah. so like, right. So I'm, I have a better outlook, but you probably were really devastated. Jessica's going to answer that question. As soon as we talk about Omnipod. Flexible, precise, simple, discreet, waterproof. That is the peace of mind that you're going to get with the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. And there's a really simple way for you to find out if you're going to enjoy it. You just go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box to try your free, no obligation demo pod. You plug in the tiniest little bit of information about yourself, send it off to Omnipod. They're going to contact you and send you a pump. Now, it doesn't work, work, but it is the exact pump. So you can wear it, see how it feels, and decide for yourself is that stuff Scott's telling me on the Juice Box podcast? Is that true? You get to decide. And if it's not, no harm, no foul. You just don't do anything. But if you love it the way I think you're going to, then you just keep moving in the process. And Omnipod's going to make it super simple for you to either switch from the pump you have now or start using an insulin pump for the first time. As a matter of fact, if you happen to be an Animus user right now, Omnipod knows that things are changing quickly in diabetes technology, and they understand that that can be stressful. They are really committed to the diabetes community and to their tubeless insulin pump system. So for Animus users right now, there are zero upfront costs, and they hope that that helps you ease the transition because they know how much it hurts to leave a pump that you love and to find another one. But they are also very confident that you will love Omnipod. So whether you're an Animus user who's been abandoned and you need to find a new pump, or you're just somebody who wants to try an insulin pump for the first time, here's what you need to do. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Give it a try today. I think you'll be happy that you did. I mean, honestly, given the choice between tubing and no tubing, is there really much of a decision to be made? Tubeless is. It's better. It was really hard. I really, you know, had already at this point devoted four years of medical school and two years of residency up to that point to, your, you know, urologic surgical training. Mm-hmm. And I really had a lot of question about, like, will I be able to be a surgeon any longer? And it's turned out, actually, it's totally fine. Like, it requires a little bit of thought, but it's totally fine. I have no doubts about that now. And, you know, I, I, it's certainly not been what I thought it was, but I was really concerned. And then the other thing, again, sort of having this, I, I think my rational mind said, well, I'm not going to be one of these people that hopefully has like, quote, horrible complications. I'm putting that in air quotes, you can't see. But that's, I think, a, a very loaded term. But anyway, you know, I thought, oh, well, I probably won't this probably won't be me. But my kind of non-rational mind, you know, was just running amok, kind of envisioning these worst case scenarios. Yeah, I'll be dead in nine months. It, it, yeah. It, right, right. No, no. I, oh, wow. That's nuts. Okay. So did you get, um, 
how did you how did they set you up needles pens pump? well so it's interesting you know i guess ada now is talking about stage one two and three of type one diabetes stage one being you have uh, anti-beta cell antibodies gad antibodies but your uh, glycemic control is normal you don't have any dysglycemia Stage two is you start having some dysglycemia elevated blood glucose in the presence of autoantibodies, but you're not, um, you know, meeting criteria for, you know, an A1C of greater than 6.5 or kind of the other standard criteria of type 1 diabetes. And then stage three would be overt symptomatic autoantibody positive. And so really, you know, where I was kind of that stage two place, I had some dysglycemia, but I, I probably wasn't at a point where I could really tolerate systemic insulin. So the, the decision was made, like, why don't we just put you on some um, antihyperglycemics? Why don't you go on metformin and start checking your blood sugar and we can just sort of get some patterns and we'll keep a close eye. And, you know, probably within the next six months to six years, you're going to need to to go on insulin, but you're not there yet. And so that's where I started. So did they see you as a type one in that moment? You know, the, the phrase that was put on it was LADA, um, mm-hmm. latent autoimmune diabetes of adulthood, which I think was very fair. But no, I, I don't think people knew exactly where it was going to shake out. And there wasn't a lot of counseling that was able to be given. So with, the, with hindsight now and, and with your background, because you do hear this happening to adults a lot, right? There's either they're misdiagnosed as type 2 and they're type 1 or, or they're told um, LADA and it's, some, you know, and it's type 1. Or, you know, but do you see th- that path that that process goes through? Does that have to be like that? Is it just such an inspecific situation for the for the doctor who's diagnosing you? Because I think some people see it as as mismanagement on the doctor's side, but sometimes I listen to the stories and I think, wow, I don't know how they would have come to a different conclusion immediately. No, I think in my case, I don't think I was mismanaged. You know, it was this really fluke thing that I got this, you know, insurance blood work. And had I not done that, I think what would have happened is I would have gone about my life and then eventually, you know, really gotten to sort of overt insulin dependence and come in, you know, who knows, and DKA or polyuria, all those things you usually hear about and probably would have gone straight to a type one diagnosis. But I had this long runway because of this fluke thing of being kind of caught where I was. So that makes sense. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. That makes sense. Oh, gosh. Oh, well, so at what point could, how did you, how would, how did you enjoy the metformin? <laughs> it, it was fine. You know, I had a little GI distress to start, but it was okay. But that was when I decided like, you know, just from some reading on my own and things that just sort of made sense. And I think that one direction that our conversation may go is like, in some ways, I kind of was out in the wilderness because I'm not the standard track and I have like just enough knowledge to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. So in like the busy world of doctors, I think a lot of people kind of trusted me to manage myself in my own ways sometimes, which is probably good and bad. But um, I decided too. at that time, like, you know, I was on this super carb heavy vegetarian diet and I was like, this is not going to be sustainable. So literally overnight, I went from like very carb dependent um, vegetarian diet to a more low carb paleo diet. I added meat back in, which is like a boon for my husband and really cut out all the grains, almost all the carbs to sort of a veggie protein fat diet. It's like, it's like a, it's like a bad sitcom where someone asks your husband, are you a vegetarian? And he says, no, but my wife is. So yes. And <laughs> yeah, no, you're exactly yeah. right. That guy does not go to the grocery store. <laughs> um, but that, so, so listen, were you a vegetarian, not to get too far off track, but were you a vegetarian for, just dietary reasons or did you, do you have, did you have, I'm trying to imagine, did diabetes put you back into eating meat and you didn't want to for? Yes. Oh, okay. No, you're exactly right, Scott. That was a very astute pickup. So in college, I kind of decided that 
I wasn't really sure about the safety and environmental ethics of how meat was typically produced. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about the number of um, you know gallons of water that it takes to produce a pound's worth of protein from animal protein versus a pound's worth of protein from plant protein sources. And it's like some, you know, tenfold difference, quite a bit, or, you know, methane that's produced by cows or and then also, you know, what are all these hormones that's put into the meat systems? And especially when I was in college, I was broke. And so it's not like I had the money to buy kind of ethically sourced, organic, fancy stuff. And so I said, I'm just going to pull myself back from this system. And until I know more or until I can afford to do what feels sort of environmentally and ethically right to me, I'm going to just not eat this stuff and make it really simple. And so that was from college until until your diagnosis. That was a long yeah. time. So that's all. Yeah, that's it's a, like 10 years. That's a big chunk of your life. Yeah. And so that, you know, I always, you always hear people that have to make dietary changes. I just spoke to someone yesterday whose episode won't be up for forever, but whose child was diagnosed with type one and celiac at the same time. And there was this big <laughs> switchover in the house for dietary reasons. But it never occurred to me that there could be like your social like ideas could be affected by it. I just, that never struck me at all. That's interesting. But I, I guess that makes sense. Um, did you did you enjoy the first hamburger afterwards or did you feel bad? I want to know that. First. You know, I think the first, so I actually like, you know, did a little reading on like, well, when people reintroduce protein after not having, you know, eaten animal protein for a long time, what should they do? And like the whatever website I went to on the internet said, oh, go with something bland, do like a chicken breast. And granted, I think that I probably had never prepared a chicken breast in my life because I went from high school at home where my family more or less cooked for me to college where then I stopped eating meat to now, okay, I'm going to try and cook this stuff. And I think it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, just like dry and probably I didn't have any sauce or anything on it. And I was just like, this is what I have befallen now. So I had to do some learning. That's amazing. I don't know, I'm sorry. I did, that just really caught my attention when you were saying it earlier. And I, I know that's probably not why you came out of talk, but still. So, okay. So do you, do you use a pump now or a glucose monitor or any of the kind of technology? I use a CGM. I've had it for probably two and a half years. I love it. My Dexcom is like just the best thing. Um, and then I'm actually just in the process now of going from multiple daily injections to getting on a pump and, um, shout out to Omnipod. That's the pump that I've selected. So I'm just waiting to get all the insurance stuff cleared up. That's very cool. So that's, so this is interesting. So you've been doing injections. I'm going to, I'm going to go down a lot of different paths with you today. So you've been doing injections with a Dexcom. Um, mm-hmm. where are you willing to tell me about the range your A1C stays in? Sure. So my probably range for the last year was, or my average for the last year is about 5.7. Mm-hmm. Wow. And do you feel like, and so you can see your blood sugar. Do you have a plentiful amount of lows or anything like that? I have more lows than I would like. That's one of the reasons I'm going on the pump. Okay. It's funny, actually, um, you know, going from being a resident to being a fellow is like night and day in terms of lifestyle. Like my work hours in a week for as a resident were probably like close to 70 hours. And my work hours as a fellow are like, 45 to 50 with a lot of flexibility. So even though you think, gosh, residents, they're working all these hours, it sounds so brutal. It was actually very easy to be very regimented because every day looked the same. It involved work, 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 and then more work. So I wasn't exercising. I wasn't going to restaurants. I wasn't, you know, having two glasses of wine. There were not any variables. So I was very able to like really know what was up Um, versus now as a fellow, like I Three days a week, I go to these like pretty intense interval training class. I go to CrossFit, um, you know, and so that does a number on my 
low glucose. And, you know, on the weekends, my husband and I go out and maybe that does a number on it too. And so now that now I need a little bit more flexibility because I have a lifestyle that allows for that. Yeah. You bring up something that I don't know that I say enough is, is that I have an easier time managing Arden while she's in school because after the first couple of weeks of school, it's, she gets up, she eats or doesn't eat in the morning. She goes to school. She eats or does you know, she eats at a certain time. She gets home at a certain time. Once you figure out the pattern of that, it's just like autopilot after that. It's, mm-hmm. it's summertime that's worse because now she doesn't always get up at the same time. Now sometimes she wakes up at noon and it's like, I'm going to have pancakes instead of, you know, like, oh, I, you know, you used to eat at 1030 at school. And now, and it just, the, the variability is, it, it's cheating almost when your life is really structured. It is almost cheating a little bit with diabetes because you, you sort of don't have a lot of unforeseen things happening to you. You're uh, right. Yeah, that's really something. So. Um, but so, but you did say, so you have more lows than you want. So you're having lows because, because the reason I asked about the Dexcom and the injections is I've gotten a fair number of, of messages from people who are like, can you talk about how you manage your daughter, but how you would do it without a pump? And so mm-hmm. I tried, I had someone on the show, it hasn't aired yet. And the, you know, they have a child with, you know, and we just kind of tried to talk it through and 20 minutes into it, I was like, I guess I can't do it. Like, I don't know how to, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, how do you look at a 140 and say, you know, I'm going to inject the tiniest little bit of insulin to try to bump my my blood sugar down 30, 40, 50 points? Like, you're not going to, I don't know if an adult might do it, but I don't know a lot of parents who'd be like, hey, come here, eight-year-old, you know, I'm going to push your blood sugar a little bit here and I'm going to have to stick you with another needle. I know some people Mm -hmm. are bothered by it, but it just, in my mind, that's the only way I could really consider it. So... Um, are you excited about that? Is that the, is that the most exciting part about thinking about getting a pump is just yep. smaller adjustments? Absolutely. Cause you're so right. Like, and I use pens too. So I've got one unit as my smallest dose. I can't even bolus myself with a half unit or a quarter unit or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then the idea of like temp basils, oh my God, every podcast of yours I listen to and you say, oh, I'm just going to put Arden on a temp basil. I just like, you know, my eyes get big and I'm like, I can't wait. It is. I've, I'm repeating myself, but even before I really knew what having a pump meant when we went to that first pump class and we were having that discussion with the the nurses and everything at the hospital and they started describing it. I was like, Oh wow. Like we won't use a slow acting insulin anymore. Like that didn't even occur to me back then. I was just like, Oh, so the pump will do the whole thing. And then I was like, wow, so I could stop it and start it. Like, you know, like it was just like, yeah. it was like a dream come true because I've, I've said it a million times, but there were so many times I'd look at my daughter and her blood sugar would be like sitting at this spot and I think I I wish I could just shut her Levomir off right now, and mm-hmm. you know, and or yeah, I wish I could just make it work a little harder, a little faster. That was my first excitement about a pump. A pump was the idea of manipulating the basal insulin. So, oh, you're gonna have such a good time. I, I know it's such a geeky diabetes thing to say, I guess, but <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, yeah. So hey, um, while we're gonna keep recording, but we're gonna do Arden's bolus for lunch real quick. Oh, perfect. So, yeah. That's- um. So this is uh, day one of a new pump. So it's working extra good at the moment. Um, she had a little thing this morning. She just got contact lenses the other day. Oh. And so she's a little struggling still with the, the in and out of them. So she comes downstairs. She's like 10 minutes early to, to go to uh, school. Um, and she... Uh, and she comes downstairs and she's like, I'm just going to pop in my contacts and then you, we can leave. And I was like, okay. And 20 minutes later, she's like <laughs> a 12 year old cursing in my kitchen, like poking at her face and, you know, and she's now late for school and, 
And I'm like, it's okay. Like, I don't want to freak her out about it because she's doing well with the, with the contacts, you know. So I'm just like, don't worry. It's all good, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, and so I didn't want to freak her out. But I think she started getting a little kind of agitated. Uh-huh. Um, and so I say, I'm looking and her blood sugar just starts heading up. Um, and on her way out the door, somebody left a soft pretzel. And the, there was a lot of softball and baseball being played here yesterday afternoon. So a lot of, uh, for, for, for Northeast people, a lot of Wawa visits happened yesterday. Uh-huh. And, and so um, there's this, she's like, can I'm just going to take a piece of this soft pretzel. And she yanks off this just nondescript hunk of a soft pretzel. And I was like, uh, okay. And so, <laughs> and so I was like, um, I said, why don't you... Um, hold on. We're going to do a nine unit extended bolus, 30% now and the rest over half hour. She's 76 right now. She, Ooh, very nice. Her blood sugar. I, and, well, so here's the rest of the story. Not, she eats the pretzel. I'm like, bolus two units. Cause I don't know what to do. She was like 110 diagonal up. I, she's grabbing this piece of soft pretzel. I'm like, do two units. She does the two units. She gets in the car, starts eating the pretzel already. There's no pre bolus. I'm like, eh, everything's going to get a little upside down. So about, an hour ago, she like leveled, like she just kind of climbed and climbed and climbed and leveled at 170. So I gave her this like 0.7 bolus and now she is 70, like I said, 76 now. But now I have to, I have to pre-bolus for lunch and the rest of the day is going to be like a, a magic carpet ride to hell. So, um, yeah. so I'm, I'm thinking that this extended bolus, if I put three units in, she won't start falling in the next 10 minutes off of three units because it won't even get started by the time she starts eating. The rest of it will start working for the extent. It should be fine. All right, I'm, t- I'm shutting the uh, I'm shutting down the text messaging. Sorry. Oh no problem. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so, so now you're gonna get a pump. You're gonna make these adjustments. You're gonna. Is that your nature? Like, is are you gonna be like super geeky with it? Do you think? Oh God, yeah. I know you're not necessarily a data guy, although I think you actually are a data guy at heart, based on how you kind of manage. And I'm gonna even use the word experiment in like a really loving way yeah. with with Arden's management. But I'm like totally a data mm-hmm. guy. And so I can't wait to be able to make those little changes and, you know, sort of ex- do a little experimenting. I think that that's one thing that I've really learned in my management. Because, again, I know just enough to be dangerous. And I think that that's sometimes led my doctors to give me a little leeway. And now that I'm coming and kind of getting this pump education, like I'm realizing that, you know, I didn't learn the classical teaching. But in some ways, that's really freeing because as long as you're able to do it safely, it gives you a lot of empowerment to manage your disease for yourself. Because yeah. you always say this, you know, you see the endocrinologist once every three months. As an adult, I see the endocrinologist once every six months. And if those were the only times I was making changes to my regimen, I mean, forget it. Yeah, so the the one thing I have had going for me that it's such a weird thing because growing up, I don't think this was a trait that anybody would want their kids to have. But I, I don't really enjoy being told what to do. Mm-hmm. And so I, and, and I have just enough narcissism to really believe in myself for, uh-huh. for, for reasons that aren't really valid. Um, but, but I, so I believe in myself. I don't like being told what to do. And so then when I get into a situation where people are like, you can't do this or you need to do it like this, my immediate natural reaction is, well, F you like, like I'm going to, I'll do it. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, and so like I said, I don't think that's something you'd want to look up and see your 16-year-old employing in their life, and I'm sure my parents weren't thrilled. But when once Arden had diabetes, and I would see the doctor saying, you know, do it like this, and then that wasn't bringing any kind of a resolution that I was looking for, 
it was very simple for me to just go, well, I'm not going to listen to you. And, mm-hmm. and I think sometimes, not that I don't think you should listen to your doctor. I think that sometimes when you're seeing things happen right in front of you and they're happening over and over again and you're not insane, you should probably trust that they're actually happening. And, you know, and to go back to this person every quarter who says, no, 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 this is the rules, do it like this. The one thing that I, you know, there's a number of things that I see in the community that make me feel terrible, but people who are caught in that pain of, I want to do something positive. What they're telling me to do isn't working, but I have been raised or my brain works in such a way where I can't buck power. You, you, mm-hmm. know, you know what I mean? Like, I feel terrible for those people who are stuck because because they can see it. Like, I always feel like they're standing at the finish line. They can see, the, like, one more step, they're going to be in a field of, of wildflowers. You, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and But there's a guy on the other side in a white coat going, you can't come over here. Right, stay put. Yeah, and, and then they do it. And so I'm just like, oh, that's horrible. And so not only is it horrible that they're not getting to this health resolution or living a you know a healthier way, but but that they're tortured by it at the same time. Like they're 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 cognitively aware that they're being tortured. Like that's how it feels mm-hmm. to me when I see mm-hmm. them do that. So I don't know. So like that's the side of me I like to let out when I'm talking because I hope that people find in their heart like just the you know in, in the end this very simple you know, advice, which is, you know, just trust your gut a little bit. I think trust your gut is great advice, but if you're having trouble doing that, you could definitely trust the Dexcom G5. This continuous glucose monitor is the core of how we take care of Arden. First of all, there's share and follow apps, right? These apps are available for Android and for iPhone. So Arden has the Dexcom share on her phone and I have the Dexcom follow on my phone, as does my wife and anyone else we want to be able to see Arden's blood sugars. So we set these ranges on her on her device and it tells us, hey, her blood sugar's fallen below 70 or it's rose above 130. Then we get to make these kind of quick and simple little adjustments to her blood sugar that keep things from getting way out of range, causing that ride on the roller coaster that I know everyone hates. This is all really due to the data that's coming back from the Dexcom. These rise and fall alerts are the key to how you can make quick decisions. Decisions that keep big problems from ever happening. Now, of course, my results might not be your results, but you listen to the podcast. You know how it's working for me. I think it's very likely it'll work for you the same way. In addition, FDA has already said you don't even need to test anymore. You can use use the Dexcom to make dosing decisions. So, for instance, just a few minutes ago while I was doing this, I gave Arden insulin for lunch while she was at school. She didn't have to test her blood sugar. She just sent me a quick text. We talked about it for 30 seconds. We did a bolus with her Omnipod, and that was it. Her blood sugar is cruising along. She got a great pre-bolus for her meal. Everything's good. You definitely want to be able to see that information when you're making these decisions. Go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. And when you get there, fill in the information, and you'll be on your way to a life with diabetes, much like the one I described here. Dexcom.com forward slash juice box. Do you ever wonder, like maybe you're not in this similar situation, but is it is it odd to listen to a conversation that goes, I go to my doctor, this person who went to all this schooling and really is trying very hard to do the best thing, and the help they're giving me is very mediocre at best. Is that how do you see that from a physician's side? There's so many angles to how to answer that question. One is, you know, kind of the individual health versus population health question, you know, and then one is the question of what's going to kill someone today versus what's going to kill someone in 30 years, Mm -hmm. you know, but here's a perfect example. I was at this pump class, um, two days ago 
And, you know, there's some audience participation. There was, I don't know, maybe six people there um, that were all doing their pre-pump training. And the CDE there says, okay, well, if your blood glucose is 70, what's your correction? And kind of everyone goes around the table. Okay, well, here's what I would do, blah, blah, blah. And the standard teaching and what the CDE wanted you to say was, well, 15 grams of quick acting carbs. I mean, for me, 15 grams of carbs is going to raise me 100, 130 milligrams per deciliter. Mm -hmm. And that would put me from 70 to 170, 200, you know, and that that especially with the Dexcom. Yeah, I don't need that. But, you know, for people that don't necessarily have a Dexcom, don't know, well, hey, was I a flat arrow? Was I double down arrows? You don't have that or don't have kind of the same insights into their disease or aren't going to retest, you know, say, hey, do 15 grams of carbs. You know, that person's not going to then likely not likely to then have some sort of terrible outcome of, you know, acute hypoglycemia seizure or something, you know, so on and so forth. So they're really, I think, really incentivized. Our doctors are really incentivized to say, what is going to address this problem right now? You know, it's like triage um, as opposed to sort of thinking more into the future. Yeah. And it's, it's something too, because it's such a specific idea. When you said, when you asked the question, your blood sugar 70, what are you going to do? My first question is, well, is it moving? Why do you need to do anything? Right, exactly. Right, yeah, yeah. Do, do I not? Isn't this where I pull out that little champagne popper and make confetti go up in the air? Like, aren't I, yeah, aren't I excited? Fine. My blood sugar 70. Right, and, and, right. and at the same time, if it was 70 and falling, I would have an answer. If it was 70 diagonal down, I would have an answer. If it was, you know, 70 and she hadn't had insulin in four hours, I'd have a different, my answers are, would be so varied, but I get what you're saying. And I get, I get what they're doing, which is they have to assume that everybody in this 70 situation needs to bring their blood sugar up because not everybody right. has the same grasp of it. Not everybody has the same technology, et cetera, et cetera. And they can't give you an amount of carbs. It's not going to save your life in case you're in trouble. So 15, it's this random, it's not random. 15 is the number, you know, like, 15 right. carbs, if you're not falling, should be enough to move your blood sugar back up again. And you, Jessica, are going to use 15 and end up with a blood sugar of 170, and someone else is going to use 15 and end up with a blood sugar of 85. Mm -hmm. like, right, so maybe they were doubled down. Maybe they're not Dexcom users. They wouldn't know, but so many back in their situation. Right, right. right. It's it just so many what-ifs, and it, it is... Like I was, I don't know when it was anymore now. It's been a, a few weeks, but I was up at, um, a little later at night and I was just sort of flipping through a bunch of different things. And I ended up on Facebook where this person's like, my daughter's blood sugar is 95. It was like one thirty in the morning. She's like, what should I do? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I would like, I don't know, take off all your clothes and run around the house and scream how happy you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. That would be fantastic because, because this A1C that you're, that you're, you know, that you want so badly, that's how you're going to get it by leaving her at 95 all night, you, right. you know? And so, um, but sure enough, so many people came in and said, you need 15 carbs, have her drink a juice, wake her up yeah. and give her something to eat. And I was like, wow, I, at a 95 and I'm, I, I actually, there are times I see my daughter's blood sugar at 95 and steady overnight. And I do think, I wish I could get just a little lower. Like, uh, yeah, that's cool. Good right, for you. Right. You know, well, my blood sugar is not 95 when I'm sleeping, is it? No, right, it's not. Right. So, um, you know, it's just it's but it's not very understandable. Everything you said about why doctors do what they do is very understandable. So now that's sort of your medical opinion of it, which I, I hear. Um, and by the way, let's just say Jessica's not a doctor right now. She's a, a person on a podcast. She's not here being your doctor. But but it's interesting to hear her insights because she's got a lot of different hats here. So now. What's your what's your perspective of it as a person with diabetes with an MD? What do you wish they would have said in that pump training class? 
Oh, gosh. You know, I, I guess I'm a little bit trapped at being that person that sees someone standing on the other side of the finish line saying, don't go. And then I just stand there because I understand why they would say that. But like my answer, honestly, was like, I, I'm certainly not going to take 15 grams of carbs. I might not even take four grams of carbs. I might not take any carbs. Right. And I just sort of kept that to myself. You know, I, I sort of kept that very quiet because I felt like that would be very controversial. You know, so maybe that speaks to a little bit of we all, I think, have some reticence to disagree, not maybe not disagree, but to bring up contrary points to our CDEs, our doctors, et cetera. Because um, oftentimes they're so nuanced, you know, that I, I think it takes a special CDE or a special endocrinologist to be willing to sort of accept that gray zone or that variability. Well, I also think I brought it up while we're talking about it because I, w- I really would like the people listening to hear like this is the reason you need to make sure that your physician that's helping you with your diabetes understands who you are and what your understanding of everything is because they can they will answer you differently if they recognize who you are you know for anybody who's listening to this who's ever called me privately and there's a few of you um everyone's going to know that at some point in the conversation they've heard me say you sound like a bright person so let's talk like this and, mm-hmm. and, and it is in the first couple moments of the conversation, you kind of listen and I listen for a few things, right? Um, their goals and their intent, how focused they seem on what they're trying to accomplish. And do they, do I feel like in my estimation, I'm not a doctor, but in my estimation, if I start saying next level things to them, are they going to jumble them up in their head or are they going to keep them straight? Are they understanding the nuance of what I'm saying or is it going to go beyond them? You know, and so, and even just a private conversation, it's clearly not medical advice, but still, I still think like, it's funny, it hits me too. Like, well, I wouldn't want to say this to that person, but I could say uh-huh. it to that person, you know? Yes. So it's so important to let your doctor know who you are. You, you know what I mean? Like, this is my <laughs> level. I mean, don't, don't go in there telling them, you know, the AP classes you took as a senior, but, uh, you know, but, but you do want to give them the idea when you're speaking that, look, I'm a bright, clear headed person. Mm-hmm. My goal is to make my blood sugar, my child's blood sugar, more stable, lower, whatever it is your goal is, let them let them understand that that you understand. Because then I think that in a lot of cases, unless you've got a junkie doctor, you are going to get a different level of direction from them. Do you think that's true? Do you find yourself doing that too? Absolutely. And I'm just going to call out one thing that you just said in that statement, which is have some goals for your visit with your endo or your CDE before you come, either think about it or like, honestly, write it down because you're going to forget it when you're in the office. This is, these are the two things I want to address, or this is the one thing I don't understand. And the one thing I want to work on, could we, you know, really touch on these things today? Because you'd be surprised, at least in my world, like, you know, as a urologist, the number of people that kind of come to the office and are a little bit all over the place. And it's hard sometimes. Well, it's not hard. I, I end up focusing that conversation on the things that I decide are most important, mm-hmm. but that's, that's me deciding, you know, rather than a patient driven visit, which is what we all aim for. Do you think Jessica and I'm going to be lighthearted here for a second? Those people are extra nervous because they're about to show you their lady bits. You know, it's hard to say. <laughs> so by the way, uh, update Arden's blood sugar is now stable at 63 and, and the pre bolus has been in for 10 minutes. So I'm going to assume that that first three units is starting to work on her a little bit because she's down 10 points from where we kind of started, um, mm-hmm. 10 or 15 points from where we started. But she's beginning to eat right now. So she's not falling. It's a 63 and stable. Mm-hmm. And the insulin's starting to work. The food's going to start working in a second. This is going to work out like perfectly. 
Like I, this is going to be one of these lunches. Her blood sugar doesn't go over 95 for at least the next two hours. And then, you know, I know Scott, part of the reason you're able to say this is because you're a very experienced parent of a person with diabetes. But one thing I really love about listening to your podcast is I don't often hear a lot of non-productive judgment, you know, of yourself when you talk about managing Arden's diabetes. It's always kind of like, this is an opportunity to learn. You know, I'm watching this, I'm seeing what I can learn, and I'm going to try and do better next time. And I've really had to find like, because I used to get really nervous with highs, actually mm-hmm. coming from this background of, oh my gosh, any blood sugar that's higher than, you know, a normal person's blood sugar would be, is just going to lead me to, down this terrible path. And I finally just sort of come to say like, hey, this is what I did. This is what I tried. It didn't work. Next time I'm going to do better. But then actually you have to do something different next time. You know, you can't be that person that sort of says next time will be better, but then does the same thing again and again and again. Yeah, because then that's sometimes the fear or the insecure, the, ins- the uncertainty grabs a hold of you right there. And so uh, listen, I will tell an, a completely opposite story from less than 24 hours ago. So okay. <laughs> yesterday, right? Yesterday was... So yesterday was this. My son was playing baseball at 4 o'clock, a town over from here. Arden had baseball, softball practice after school that ended at 4.30. Um, she was going to play a softball game literally across the street from where my son was playing a baseball game. She had to be there at 5.30. His game was going to be over at 6. So as a parent, I saw this opportunity to go see my son play for a half an hour, then take my daughter over to her thing, drop her off, go back across the street, watch Cole play for 20 more minutes, then go back over and watch her play. So I brought all, I tried to do the right thing. Damn it, Jessica, I got this big meal. I bought her a sandwich and all kinds of things. There was fruit and chips and like, it was a completely like kid-friendly basket of joy. And I get her there and I'm like, okay, I know you're hungry. She's like, I am. I'm like, look at all this food I bought you. And she, ah, she opens the sandwich. She goes, I don't like ham. How do you not know I don't like ham? And I'm like, but there's turkey in there too. And she's like, and and then there's that. So now the sandwich has been jettisoned aside. By the way, I had it for breakfast this morning. So now the sandwich is aside. Um, And then it's, well, I don't want, uh, and then she gets a little irritated. I'm like, oh my God. So I'm like, okay, look, let's do three units right now. Go ahead and start eating. I'm going to walk over there, talk to this gentleman I know, and I'm going to be back in 10 minutes. And her blood sugar was great. It was literally like 95 and, um, and so I went over, I talked, I came back. I said, so what did you decide to eat? Cause I thought, oh, we're going to need more insulin. She goes, I had two Oreos. And I was like, Oh no, that's it. That's all you did. Okay. And so here's the thing I didn't realize is she went to softball practice after school and didn't drink a drop of the water that I sent with her. So she's <laughs> now, she ran around for an hour and a half and she's dehydrated. So these Oreos are now going to hit her way harder than they would have normally. And because she had enough insulin going for them and it would have been okay. But I still said, look, let's, I saw a little diagonal up one, 110. I was like, throw another unit on there and we'll, we'll address it with more carbs. But I don't want you to be high while you're playing. And so everything's fine. I take her across the street at 530. My wife shows up over at her game, stays with her. I said to my wife, I'm going to go back over and finish watching Cole and I'll be back. And I get back around 620. And she's up there. I'm watching her play. She's doing great. And um, I don't know exactly. I think it's. I think they were warming up, so she was way off on the field, away from her bag, and mm-hmm. so there was a signal drop of about thirty minutes. In that thirty minutes, Arden's blood sugar went from one fifteen to two ninety seven. <laughs> and and I was just like, okay. So I first looked at my wife, and I'm like, what happened? She goes, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, I, said, I, I don't know either. So I walked over to her. 
And I said, look, I am going to give you an oppressive amount of insulin, and we're going to catch it with juice if we have to. But I'm not going to leave your blood sugar high like this, especially while you're trying to do this. I gave her three units for a stable 297. And an hour later, do you know what her blood sugar was? Where was it's it? It's 290. <laughs> 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 it's like, and now the game was ending. And our favorite restaurant bar is up the street. And everyone wants to go and have bar food for dinner at 830 yeah. at night. And so I looked down and I said, okay, well, it's been an hour. The three units didn't do anything. Here's three more units. I cranked her basil up. I gave her three more units. And by the time 20 minutes later got by and my son was, you know, coming to meet us for dinner and everything, she was like 270 diagonal down. Mm -hmm. And so I said to her, what are you going to eat? And she's like, I'm going to get fried shrimp. And I was like, okay. And then we got this basket of French fries that everybody was going to pick out of. And so there was no way to... I, I didn't know what to do. So basically what I did was is when we go there, this is about how much insulin it takes her to to go there, right? Mm-hmm. So it was also the end of a pump. The pump was going to get changed when we got home. So I just aggressively gave her nine units on top of the other three units. Mm-hmm. And we sat there waiting for my son to show up. So it bought us a little time. I was like pushing liquids on her a little bit. The more she drank, the faster her blood sugar started falling for anybody who thinks that being dehydrated doesn't have anything to do with how insulin works. And, um, it's falling and it's falling and it's falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. Got home, changed her pump. And I would say that when she went to bed at 10 30, her blood sugar was one ten. And then around 11.30, I did have to give her a juice because she made it to 65. Mm-hmm. But it didn't affect her life. I, I to Going way back to your point, I did not feel bad about it. I didn't sit there going, oh, my God, what did I, what did I do? There she is a little low now while she's eating, but it's perfect because she's eating. Um, I didn't think, what did I do? Oh, my gosh, this has ruined everything. I did feel bad for her because I thought she might be a little sluggish. She's going to be sluggish mm-hmm. while she was playing. But just... I kept my head clear and I was like, how am I going to fix this? Like fix it right now. Like not mess around with it. And you know, it all worked out fine. Like, like it really did. And then, you know, now, like I said, new pump, new pump site is working like a champ. And it's funny, had this day happen on day one of an insulin pump, it wouldn't have happened exactly like this. So I think part of what happened was that end of the end of the cannula cycle that that is difficult, Mm -hmm. you know? So, and I always talk about it, and I'm not ever 100% sure that I'm right. It's somebody told me, maybe you know better. Uh, the longer the cannula is under your skin, your body sees it as a foreign body. Is that right? Correct. And so it sends white blood cells to it? You know, I don't know exactly the sort of immune mechanism mm-hmm. of whether there's some immune, immunogenicity, immunogenicity against the insulin versus just against the cannula tip, but there's more immune system stuff happening there that's preventing your body from absorbing that insulin the way that, yeah. that it wants to. In my mind that thinks of things like cartoons, I always imagine the, the white blood cells just clogging up the end of the cannula. And I don't know that that's accurate as to what happens, but the reaction that I get on my end, the physical thing that happens on my end, it, that's how it feels. You know what I mean? It feels like it's restricting the flow of that, even though I know she's getting all of the insulin you know, maybe it's just the site is oversaturated after three days or you know, there's so many possibilities, I guess, you know. Um, but but nevertheless, it, it, I think it is really important to to, to do what you, were, what you were talking about, which is just to not do your best not to judge yourself in that situation and just 
you know, do your best. Really. Carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How how long did it take you, Scott, to sort of get to that framework? Because it probably took me four years. So if you keep in mind that I didn't have the technology, Arden's been diagnosed for a decade. Uh, my first two years were mostly just feeling like I was hanging off the edge of a cliff and crying at the same time. That that's sure. what that's what it felt like. Um, then I did find a way to have more of it make sense. And maybe she was even just older. So her being able to communicate with me differently probably alleviated a lot of the, uh, of the issues that we had. It was a lot of time spent staring at her, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, like, is she low? What do those dark circles in her eyes mean? Like, you know, like that kind of stuff. Um, but it was two, two years in before I felt comfortable. And back then comfortable meant I had needles and a a meter. And Mm -hmm. then it was two more years when she was four, we got her an Omnipod. Mm-hmm. And then that started to feel better because then I actually was able to move her, her A1C for the first time. Mm-hmm. You know, Arden's A1C was always in the nines or the eights in the first like four years. Sure. Of life, right. And so, and, and so I actually was able to move her A1C and then that made me feel a little like emboldened, I guess. Um, and then I think the next thing that actually happened was um, the Dexcom came into play and then that sort of took away a little bit of the fear about lows which was pretty cool. And then, then I had that big moment that I talked about on a podcast before where I texted her upstairs to give herself some insulin based off of what I saw on her Dexcom. And it just struck me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, Oh, she's upstairs, but she could be halfway across the world. Like, Mm -hmm. why why can't I do this more often? And then she stopped going to the nurse's office at school. And that was such a big leap for us. And then we just started, I guess, I don't know. Then we just really started figuring it out. And then in that space along there, when she's around second or third grade, everything that I had been seeing since I got the glucose monitor, um, it all just sort of like started making sense for some reason. You know what I mean? Like it just all started. I started thinking about more about manipulating the insulin and making the insulin do what I wanted it to do when I wanted it to do it. Um, I started thinking a lot about not being afraid anymore and really, really like cognitively thinking, I can't be afraid of this because it was that texting moment when I texted her and I thought, why do I not text her while she's at school? Like, why is it okay that she's upstairs and I'm not with her? I don't see her. I'm running through this, this scenario in my mind. Right. Um, but I wouldn't do it. And I realized the only difference is my, is my fear. And so once I had enough historical kind of like empirical knowledge of when I do this, this happens, and I can trust that now I can make decisions where they're not being there with me and not be afraid. And once I got past the fear, then everything got easier. So, but it was a long process. So in you, the, the specific answer to your question is probably five years ish. Yeah. You know, but I also started with a person who weighed 18 pounds and couldn't really talk very well. So well, and you couldn't predict what she was going to eat. I mean, I can only imagine how challenging that was because I know the challenges I've had as like a very regimented 27 year old when I was diagnosed and you were just in a different league. It's just it, it's one of those specific things. But I do think that hindsight tells me that having gone through that whole thing with her, these things we talk about on the podcast now, like the more precise understanding I have of things is because we all went through that. Like she and I went through that together, my wife and, and all of us, because without the you know, without the moment where I realized I had to learn how to press on the syringe just hard enough for a drop to come out, you know, like without having to look through that and figure that all out, then I didn't, 
I don't know if it ever would have hit me how powerful the insulin was and just how much so. And then, I don't know. I just feel like everything that we've done before is, is informing what's happening now. You know, yeah. so. you know it, it, I just drew this parallel in my mind. Have you heard of like the, it gets better campaign for um, LGBT youth? Sure. Yeah. It's sort of like the It's Gets Better campaign for diabetes, too, because like it takes a while to get your stride. But I think there's a stride to be gotten. Oh, I think that I think that the 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 largest disservice that happens is that everyone in when you most people you find in a community, you know, whether it be online or even listening to this or something, the people these are people who are are either struggling and trying to get to something better or have hit a plateau and want to get better. But there are many more of you out there who are like me, but they're just off living their lives. They didn't stay behind in the community. There's no judgment about that. Like it just, it just, you know, it's this great thing that I've, I've, I think I've spoken about here before. Like there's, you know, I'll post something on my blog and I'll see someone come in and, and, and comment on it. And then I see them over on the Facebook page and you're like, Oh, look, here they are. And they're around a lot. And then all of a sudden about six months later, a little less, a little less then they're gone one day. And that makes me really happy because in my mind, I think they've accumulated all the knowledge that they wanted and that they needed. And they're off just living like this, this happy life that was like it was before they, they found out they had diabetes. Like, That's so, really cool. you know, so I love that feeling that the people, it sucks that new people come in, but it's really great when they leave again. Like as, as counterproductive it is to the idea of my podcast, it's almost like I can't wait till people stop listening to it. You know, mm-hmm. and so um, I don't know. I just feel like if for me, for whatever reason it is, and I've talked about it here before, I probably have a real caregiver's mentality. I'm adopted. My my adopted parents split up. I'm very adverse to like, you know, family separation. Like then you know, I have I have my own psychological issues that make me really want to take care of the people who are around me who I love. Right. Sure. Yeah. And then so. One day, it just, I don't know what happened. I just, I had a blog, I gave someone advice, or you know, I said something, I wrote something down, it helped somebody. And then I had this really, like, this heavy feeling, like, that it would genuinely be wrong not to do it again. You know, like, like I, I feel like it's, I just feel like, for me, it's wrong to, to know something like this and not to look backwards and tell the person coming up behind you, hey, not only is this going to get way better, but here's maybe a shortcut to it. And then one day you're not going to feel like this anymore and you aren't going to be on this path anymore. I just don't seem to have it in me to leave the path for some reason. So, you know, like I just feel like I belong here. And I don't know if that might be narcissism. I'm not 100% certain. Uh, But I I don't feel like it is. I feel like it's just my desire to uh, be valuable to people who just aren't as far along on this as I am. It feels good, right? It's a noble thing and it feels good. It's a pleasure to do. It's better than eating potato chips. Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> no, I, I shouldn't be flipping about it. It is really one of the if I if I got hit by a car today and I was uh, on ER having my last moments with George Clooney, I would definitely tell him that you know doing this podcast and and the things like this and the diabetes community has been some of the most like joy bringing, satisfying stuff I've ever done in my life. So uh, I just think it's really great. Yeah, and I certainly appreciate it. I appreciate that that you reached out and even mentioned that to me because that's the one thing about doing stuff like this that's internet based is that a lot of times you just don't hear back from people. So you have these, this, you know, you have this data you can watch to see, you know, more and more people download it every day that, you know, so you go, Oh, it must be helpful. But until you hear back from somebody, there's no way to really know for sure. You know, Mm -hmm. 
Oh my gosh. Did we talk about any of the things that you wanted to talk about? We talked about all kinds of things. I thought it was great. Cool. Um, I did want to say the one thing in your email that I just thought was really interesting is that you called the podcast like its own sort of open source thing. Oh yeah. And that's what I alluded to like an hour ago and I never got back to is that that, that concept really struck me. Like I thought that was like, that was something I had never considered about it that I was just really glad and happy to hear from you. Like an inch. Could you tell people a little bit about how that feels to you? Sure. So I discovered your podcast not that long ago. I um, maybe was like a slow adopter of social media and kind of the diabetes online community. I read some blogs, but I didn't really follow anybody like on Instagram. I wasn't getting any diabetes related tweets. And I don't know. I sort of fell down the rabbit hole like six months ago and started seeing what people were doing out there. And like, here's a really simple thing. I was never that happy with where I wore my Dexcom. I wore it kind of on my upper butt most of the time, sometimes on my arm. Mm. But now there's like this whole, not meme, but like trope on diabetes Instagram of people that wear their Dexcoms on their upper thigh. I switched to my upper thigh like two months ago, and it's incredible. I love it. And the only reason I learned that was because of looking at these other people. But I also, I said, oh, well, I'm learning a lot about diabetes on Instagram. Where else can I go? And so I started searching for podcasts, and that's how I found you. And I just sort of you know, I consumed so many so quickly. But a couple that really stood out to me were Dana Lewis and Scott Librand and their um, APS project, their open source artificial pancreas project. And then also, and I'm forgetting his last name, it's Anthony, last name unknowable, who is working on um, like open, open source, source insulin. insulin. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And so, I, I, you know, I don't really think what they are doing is that different from what you are doing in that you are a clearinghouse for ideas, people, influencers, leaders in the community, people like me who are just kind of people with diabetes that have a viewpoint, come on, share our knowledge, and it's available for people to take, both at their pleasure and convenience, but also at their own risk, because that's kind of what open source is. Um, you know, and here you are, and you're putting that content out there. And it's just, again, for me, it's been really eye-opening to, to hear about different approaches, to hear about different technologies, and to sort of feel like I have this... Um, you know, sense of what's coming down the pike that I otherwise wouldn't know. So it's, it's been really cool. And, and like I said, I think that you are in that same group with those guys. So that was really um, humbling to hear when you, when you emailed that, because I thought, wow, I, first of all, and, and now I'll, I'll say it was humbling and then not sound humble immediately, but, <laughs> but I don't mean it that way. But like, it was really humbling because I never thought of it that way. But as soon as I read your words, I thought, oh, I think she's right. You know, like I never considered the podcast like that, but that this is exactly that. It's just, you know, to call it a clearinghouse for ideas is, I thought, just really accurate. And, uh, and, and stunning to me, because as I alluded to at the very beginning, it's not how I think of it. So, you know, like, and I have that, I joke sometimes with people that I said, I have just uh, not enough self-confidence blended with just enough narcissism that I'm able to get through my life, but I'm never quite... I'm never the person who's like just running around going, I'm right, I'm right, because I I'd never feel that way. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm always sort of, when I'm good at something, I imagine everyone's good at it. And so yeah. that's a lack of self-confidence, right? Like, because when, when I'm good at something, I think, wow, if I'm good at it, then everybody must be good at it. Because it's not possible that I could be special in any way. Like, I definitely have mm -hmm. that feeling. Uh, it's not as strong now in my 40s as it has been when I was younger, but... I definitely had that, that hits me a little bit. Um, I wrote a book and then, then people liked the book and I thought, oh, it just must be easy to write a book because right, people, right, right. If people like this one, oh, I, oh my I God. I just got lucky. I just picked the right topic. It's easy to sell ourselves short, but no, I, I certainly really appreciate what you're doing. I think that's very cool and not 
it's obviously not easy to do because show me other podcasts that are like yours. You know, show me one. And look how artfully I just got you to um, say one more nice thing about me while, <laughs> seeming like, while seeming like I don't trust myself at all. It's, well, you're going to pay me later, right? Was that oh, part of it? It's a huge check coming. These podcasts are very, very lucrative. I, I make hundreds <laughs> of thousands of dollars a month off of them. So, oh God, I hope people hear the sarcasm in that. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, um, you and you actually said one thing and I'm going to, I'm going to mention it here because I've never mentioned it before and I'd never considered it before, but, um, but I do have it. I never once talked about it. You said something that, that, um, really helped me feel how valuable the podcast was for you. Now I've gotten really wonderful emails from people and they're lovely. And, but you actually were like, can I give you money for this? And I was like, wait to support it. And I was like, wow, really? Uh, I was, I, and I was like, well, I, I do have a donation button. I never tell anybody about it, but I do. And I told you about it, but that's not the reason I bring it. Like, I need you to sort of, as we're ending here, um, I guess, tell me what, because to have that feeling, like I would like to hand someone some of the money I've made. Um, I guess I need to know what, how, how being in, like, forget the podcast for a minute, but how getting information out of the community has helped you or changed you enough that you feel like I would give someone a dollar for this. Like, like, can you explain that? Because I know community is important and I say community is important, but I feel like you might be able to put it into words for some reason. It's just all about hope. You know, I, I certainly wasn't feeling in the doldrums about my diabetes, but being part of the community has made me realize, oh, little things can make a big difference and I can be even better. And you not only kind of your day-to-day management, but again, sort of hearing about these potential future technologies, you know, artificial pancreas, what Dexcom's got in the works, what Omnipod's got in the works, because I know you interviewed sort of CEOs and, and C-suite folks from those companies too. Just, it feels exciting. It feels like the future is going to be bright and you can't put a price on that feeling. You know, it's just incredible. So it's another aspect of it I didn't imagine. So just, it's just... To, it, it sort of adds hope to know what's coming in a world where you wouldn't normally hear about what's coming. Right. Yeah. And it's just, there's such a personal and intimate face on your podcast compared to, you know, a lot of the diabetes blogs out there, I think are very good. And, and certainly there's some big ones that, that keep us pretty abreast, I think of what's going on, but it's a lot different kind of reading those press releasey sort of statements versus, you know, you're talking to the CEO of new product design from wherever, you know, that's, that's just entree that we wouldn't have otherwise. I agree with you. I And I hope more companies agree with you too, because the ones who have been kind of bold enough to come on and, and talk in a way that's not customary for them uh, with their business, I, I've noticed that the information they've gotten out is easier to digest. It's, um, it's more understandable. People's responses back to them are more human. You know what I mean? Like, wow, it was so interesting to hear the guy talk like a real person speak about it. Um, and to not be guarded, not to be speaking from some, from some PR, you know, writing mm-hmm. is, uh, I think, really valuable. And and I hope they hear what you just said and, and want to do more of it, even if they don't do it here. Just do it elsewhere to help people with diabetes feel hopeful while they're waiting for you to develop and get through the FDA these things that you're trying to make to help them. So, all right, cool, Jessica. Thank you very much. Very um, good. Yeah. Hey, um, I'm gonna say goodbye to you and then just hold on one second, okay? Okay, sounds perfect. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Huge thanks to Jessica for coming on and sharing her perspective, both as a physician and as a person with type 1 diabetes. Thank you also to Dexcom and Omnipod for sponsoring this episode. Please go to Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox or myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox for more. Happy World Diabetes Month. 
day, extravaganza, whatever you're calling it. Please, 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 if you love the Bold with Insulin concept and you want to wear a beautiful t-shirt, adorn yourself with the phrase Bold with Insulin, go to ardensday.com forward slash store or hit the links in your show notes. Lots of you guys have ordered already. I'm really looking forward to seeing them in social media. I hope more of you do. We're going to be using the proceeds from the shirts to get me out in the public and have these conversations firsthand with people live and in person. So I uh, need a little bit of equipment for that and a little bit of travel money. Other than that, you know. That's pretty much it. Ran out of things to say. See you next week with the Juice Box Podcast. Oh, wait. I'm back. Been a lot of great um, reviews on iTunes lately. I want to thank you for those. And I want to thank you for sharing. I see you guys a lot in forums and on social media telling people, hey, I think you should listen to the Juice Box Podcast. That's where we talk about blah, 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 blah. All that stuff, all the great sharing is really helping the podcast grow. I really appreciate it. Now I'm really leaving. Goodbye.